All right, well, today we return once more to the book of Daniel. We actually today go into a very difficult passage, arguably one of the most difficult to explain and understand throughout the book of Daniel, if not the entire Bible, as we turn now to Daniel chapter 9. It is the next to last week, if you will, in our series of Dissecting Daniel. Next week we have a few chapters to go, but we'll combine the remaining chapters in Daniel into a finale next week. But today we must get through chapter 9. Again, a very difficult chapter indeed to be able to receive and explain, apply, and understand. But over the last several weeks, we have taken several opportunities to expand upon several different things we've learned throughout the book of Daniel. As I've mentioned in previous weeks, the first six chapters give us outstanding illustrations of great faithfulness exhibited by Daniel and his friends, but not only Daniel and his friends, but also by God towards his people. Now, after chapter 6, we get into the more difficult section, if you will, of Daniel. It's the biblical prophecy section. And throughout the last several weeks then of looking into chapter 7 and 8, we began to notice that there's incredible exactness and accuracy with the prophecy that Daniel receives and begins to explain in these chapters. Now, again, admittedly, this whole biblical portion of prophecy has been hard to explain and apply, but there's nothing like what we've seen so far that goes in today, because this is a very good, difficult chapter to explain. But yet, at the same time, as it's difficult to explain and maybe to apply, it's almost like today's going to be more teaching than preaching, but we still recognize how scholars look upon this particular chapter, much like it was back in chapter 7, we were introduced to the prophecy section of Daniel, that they, they talk about how it's critical to receive it. And, and there's many comments that scholars have now about chapter 9. Dr. David Jeremiah refers to the ninth chapter and says, Biblical scholars through the ages have noted how exceptional this chapter is in terms of biblical prophecy. He says, Many have called it the backbone of prophecy. H.I. Ironside says, Daniel chapter 9 is the greatest of all time prophecies. And H.C. Leopold simply says, certain verses of this chapter enroll a panorama of history that is without parallel in the sacred scriptures. So many comments, it's a few to share with you about how they look upon this chapter as critical when it comes to end-time prophecy. And hopefully before you leave today, you'll be able to understand why that is the case. So today we look at a section, if you will, of chapter 9. We will cover a lot of the chapter 9, but we won't read it all. We're going to be looking at the prophecy section more specifically in verses 20 through 27. So stand with me this morning as we do to simply honor the reading of the word. If you're able to stand, if not, that's okay too. But we're going to look in chapter 9, pick up the story and the reading in verse 20, where Gabriel comes to uh, Daniel once more, and then we'll get into the prophecy portion of the 70 weeks or 77 in verse 24. But first chapter 9 in verse 20. It says, while I was speaking, that's uh, Daniel, he's speaking and praying. And while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the holy, before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. 
and I have come to tell it to you through your greatly love. Therefore, consider, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for inequity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophets, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in the troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. His end shall come of a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree the end is poured out on the desolate. Pray, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the reading of this word. Lord, a difficult passage as we explain, as we have mentioned, Lord, to explain. But, Lord, we, just, we pray and, and, and just trust, Lord, you'll guide and you'll lead and direct us through this difficult passage. And let us be able to receive some explanation and maybe a little application as it permits itself throughout this message today in this text. So, Lord, let's just now invite the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us in this time where we're together and just receive the message you have for us today. We thank you then for what shall we learn and apply here today and understand about this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as we've already kind of noted and mentioned here, the words in these verses that we've read, verses 20 through 27, the remaining part of the chapter, the very end, if you will, are very powerful. I mean, we've only read really eight verses of this particular chapter, but I hope you get the sense that something extremely important is happening here as Gabriel makes a mention to Daniel about some things pertaining to the end time. But before we dissect these eight verses that we've read, I want to go back and refer to the beginning of the chapter because it begins to establish why Gabriel's even talking to Daniel and appearing to him and talking to him about some prophecy section pertaining to 70 weeks or 77s. So go back with me, if you will, to the beginning of the chapter. We didn't read this part, but it, it, it's good to know what's happening here as a set context for us. So in chapter 9, in verse 1, you find it tells us that the first year Darius, we had been introduced to Darius, remember, back at the end of chapter 5, and now in chapter 6, when it pertained to Daniel and the lion's den. So that's the same Darius, again, Nothing's written in Daniel necessarily in chronological order, and that ain't bothering us. But now we see how we go back to the first year of Darius, who it says was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are simply the Babylonians, and Darius has taken reign of all the things pertaining to what used to be Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. The verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right, so stop there. Because now in verse 2, note that Daniel is in possession of the prophecy, the book of Jeremiah. 
Now, the text does not reveal, as you get into the ninth chapter, how long Daniel has been in possession of Jeremiah's prophecy, how he obtained it, or how many times he's read it. So therefore, those details are just insignificant. But what is important to note here and to observe, as the text tells us and reveals and indicates, is that Daniel learns how many years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. And how long do we see must pass? It is defined as 70 years. But we ask, well, what does that mean? I mean, that is precisely what Gabriel then comes to explain because Daniel is receiving this. It's kind of a vision, if you will, but and he's getting this information. There must be 70 years to pass, but what does that mean? So Daniel receives word from Gabriel in verses 22 through 27, and Gabriel explains it to him. But it's still confusing. So we're going to elaborate upon that again in just a little bit. But before we do, let's continue a little bit. Because what we find next in Daniel chapter 9, particularly verses 3 through 19, is their very powerful prayer. It's actually called Daniel's intercessory prayer. I'm not going to read the entirety of the prayer, We'll read a small portion of the beginning to kind of set the tone for what's happening. Later, perhaps, you can read all of the prayer in verses 3 through 19. But let's look at the Daniel's intercessory prayer, which precedes the explanation that we're going to talk about with the 77 to 70 weeks. Verse 3. He's in prayer. He says, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting in sackcloth and ashes. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession. Say, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princesses, our fathers, to all the people of the land. And we can stop there because now we see Daniel is beginning to pray a very fervent, intentional prayer, an intercessory prayer. He puts on sackcloth. He puts on ashes and falls to his knees as I'm imagining it, trying to picture it in petitions, God for mercy. Notice how he pours out his heart to the Lord, confessing, not really do you discern he's confessing his sin, but he's confessing the sins of his country. And throughout the entirety of the prayer, again, verses 3 through 19, Daniel prays for his nation. He's confessing their hard-hearted rebellion and wickedness they've had towards God. And he simultaneously then acknowledges God's righteous judgment and then begs for mercy. I borrowed the words of David Dockery, who summarizes Daniel's prayer. He says, addressing God as Israel's faithful covenant Lord, Daniel confessed the nation's sinful and rebellious condition and acknowledged that they had justly suffered the covenant curses threatened by Moses. He then asked the Lord to forgive the nation's sins and once again look with favor on desolate Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever spent any time in the Word of God and studied or considered many instances of prayer just written within the Word, you may notice something about Daniel's prayer, which is how strikingly similar 
this particular prayer, this intercessory prayer of Daniel, how noticeably similar it is to the prayer you can find with Nehemiah and or Ezra. Because they all prayed for the people or the nation of their sin and their rebellion towards God. Every man, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel all took a moment, not necessarily if we can see here like Daniel's intercessory prayer, or they're praying specifically like we do, maybe for our sin and for forgiveness. But what they're doing is they're praying for their country. They're praying for the people. They're praying for their nation. So I thought about that last week, preparing for this morning, and this thought entered my mind and actually provoked a question, which is this. Do people, more narrowly Christians, you and me, do we pray for our country? Do we ever confess the sins of our country? Because notably, as we live today, we quickly recognize we're a great nation, but we begin to turn away from God. I mean, in short, we have sinned together as a country that we're living in. I mean, for example, we have in our country, we have allowed the death of innocent babies through many years of abortion. We have in our country redefined marriage. We're now it's completely acceptable to have same-sex marriage. We in our country have begun to dismiss the Bible as God's word is true by accepting worldly standards and even living by them. And there's more that we've done that we've been guilty of as a country. So we reflect upon those and we ask ourselves, do we, do, do people, Christians in general, do we pray for our country? Do we ever take a moment in our time of prayer, I'm sure we have it, do ever confess the sins of our country? Like maybe we find here with Daniel. Or we can learn about with Ezra and Nehemiah and others. Many of you have probably heard, maybe even know the verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, because it always seems the verse, when you start talking about praying for our country, it seems to be the verse that comes up, in which we should do so. So 2 Chronicles 7.14, I thought might be applicable. It says, if my people, here it is, if my people who are called by my name humbled themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 almost just instructs us to be praying for our country and asking God for forgiveness for not nearly our sin, not necessarily just what we do, but for what our country does. Of course, originally the verse was given to the Israelites, but nonetheless we tend to apply that particular verse, and we can think of that verse to apply then to our country, our sin, our wickedness, and ask God for forgiveness. And it offers then not the main point of the passage, but at least a sub-point for consideration, which is this, that Christians should pray for their country. The country sins, and then for forgiveness for the sins of our nation. And this is, we should just be like Nehemiah and Ezra and Daniel that we learn here, petitioning for mercy. You know, undoubtedly, we still live. With all the problems we have in this country, which we have, we recognize we've got problems, we still live in the best country in this world. But even though we're in the best country in the world to live in, and we're blessed to be here, 
we still have our problems. And we should be on our knees asking for forgiveness. We should be asking for divine intervention. At the same time, still asking for a continuation of blessings and favor he's given to the United States of America. May we simply have the same intent with our prayers, call upon the mighty God as Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, and others. Bring repentance upon the country. Our country needs it, as does our leader. Now, getting back to the text and visit by Gabriel. Again, notice in chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, we talked about how he is receiving this vision. You go back to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. He's, Daniel's equipped with the prophecy of Jeremiah. He's had it, and he notice he's reading it, and it just jumps off the page. The, the words jump off the page regarding the 70 years it will be to have to pass before what's known as the end of desolations of Jerusalem. And after reading this, we just noted also then how Daniel goes into the moment of prayer. He's in the prayer. We only had a small portion of the prayer we looked upon, but in verses 3 through 19, as he's in prayer, look at verse 20, because as he was speaking and praying, he gets a visit from Gabriel. It says in verse 21, he gave, the man Gabriel came to him. And it said in verse 22, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So essentially, Gabriel brings Daniel an answer to what he received at the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, the 70 years that he read about in the prophet Jeremiah. So what is the answer that he gives Daniel? Well, again, that's what's written in verses 24 through 27. I'm not going to reread those verses again. But I thought in order to maybe help explain what's happening with the 77 or 70 weeks talked about in verses 24 through 27, we'll take a little bit at a time and do it in steps. So let's go back to that text in verses 24 through 27. Here becomes the hard part of the message and begin to unravel what Gabriel was telling Daniel about this prophecy. Verse 24, take it first. And I put in bold and underlined a particular section of it. Seventy weeks, that's the beginning, seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. The first step in decoding the seventy weeks and the mystery here, the prophecy, is to understand first the meaning of the word weeks. Because in Hebrew, the original word really means a period of seven. And it can apply to either days or years. A more literal translation of Daniel 9.24 would be 77s have been determined rather than maybe 70, 70 weeks. 77s have been determined. So, I mean, history has provided and proven that Daniel was referring to years now rather than days. So begin to put that thought out of your mind. It's not days, it's not weeks, it's going to be years. But we can actually use the context what's happening in Daniel chapter 9 to actually answer that question for us and to know, not be speculative that it means years rather than not days and weeks because verse 2 refers to 70 years. So what we're going to find here then is 70 periods of 7, which is going to be 490 years in reference to the prophecy. I'll explain all that in a minute, again in a minute with the timeline even to help you. But notice how it's not weeks, it's not days, it's going to be years. 70 periods of seven must pass, and it'll be 490 years. 
Now, also further before we go on, we've got to understand this. Daniel's time and day did not have the calendar that we do today. Our calendar has how many days? 365. Daniel's time had 360 days as a reference. So there, there's, there's examples in the Bible to help prove this. I mean, in Genesis, it reveals that the, the earliest month in biblical history was 30 days in length. Multiplying 30 days at 12 months would equate to 360 days. John in Revelation refers to the same, 360 days, not 365 days as we understand the year to be. So when we begin to calculate everything up, but you see on the timeline later, it's not going to add up in your mind and by math of what you're used to. Because you're based upon 365 days in a year, they're looking at 360. So keep that in mind as well. Daniel's year consists of 360 days, not 365. So it'll change your math a bit later. Now, if you understand that, go back to verse 25. The understanding 360 days and periods of seven, 70 of those, in fact, verse 25 says, now this. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, but in a troubled time. So according to this particular verse, the prophecy of 70 weeks will begin with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. History has recorded, even in the Bible, four such decrees to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but only once do you find a decree written in the Word of God, in which is not just a temple to be rebuilt, but the walls and the city itself, the entirety of Jerusalem, if you will. Only once does that happen of the four instances. And that is the moment when Nehemiah gets permission from Artaxerxes, who's the king, to rebuild it all in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, which scholars now have dated as March 14, 445 B.C., Come back in mind that date in just a moment. There's one instant when all Jerusalem we built. There's four times it's mentioned, but once would it be the encompass of all of it. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, and 445 B.C. Now, if you're familiar with Nehemiah, you're knowing then that his rebuilding effort, well, it did come during troubled times, as referred to here in this particular verse. And and they went about to rebuild their homeland, and they received significant opposition to do so from other groups in Judea. But yet they stayed the course, and they completed the entirety of the task, not just the walls, not just the temple, but the entirety of Jerusalem to be rebuilt in 396 B.C., and that is mentioned in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. Not just the walls, but the entirety of Jerusalem as talked about in this verse, to be rebuilt, also occurred in 396 B.C. All right, so I know I'm throwing all dates information out there. But to notice this. According to verse 25, after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the prophecy anticipated an anointed one, a prince. Well, there's only one person that could be referring to as the anointed one. Because there's truly only one who is anointed. It is our Messiah. But notice the same reference even in verse 26. It says, after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. 
So it's mentioned again, the anointed one, in two different verses. That shall come simultaneously with these things happen, or be mentioned and shall arrive. So what does all that mean? How can we make sense of the prophecy just in two verses, 24, 25, and maybe a little 26? Well, let's back up just a moment now and begin to reflect on what we know about our Messiah and his earthly ministry. Because all that tells us about the Messiah and his earthly ministry, of course, is recorded in the New Testament, in all the Gospels. All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record the many miracles, the parables that he told to people and his disciples, and other ministry events of Jesus, all described in all four of the Gospels. Of course, as you read the Gospels, as you already know, not much is written on his childhood. As the focus of the Gospel writers, each and every one of them, is upon Jesus as he led his disciples. All the indication is, then, with our what we've learned about the Bible and what we've read about the Gospels, is that Jesus with the disciples teaching them for three years, nearly three years, and speculated to be around sometime A.D., 29 or 30. So here's where things really begin to get interesting and prophecy now fulfilled based upon Daniel chapter 9. Remember the date of Nehemiah's rebuilding Jerusalem. Scholars said it's 445 B.C. Also remember there's 360 days in his year and not 365 as we're used to. With that in mind, what Gabriel tells Daniel there's going to be a period, again, 77 weeks or seven sevens, which is 49 years. There's going to be a period of 49 years for the completion of the restoration of Jerusalem. And by the way, the coming of anointed one. And there's going to be a subsequent period of 62 weeks or 62 times 7, which is 434 years. They'll eventually establish the cutoff of the anointed one. That's still probably confusing. Let me say it a different way. What scholars have computed from Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 9, the explanation by Gabriel of the 77s is the date precisely of Jesus' earthly ministry. Basically, the date of Christ's ministry on earth was absolutely positively be in AD 29 and 30. And it's amazing how Daniel continued to receive exactness and accuracy because it exactly fulfilled to be that way. Now, I know all that wording, all I'm saying is probably still confusing. And believe me, as I was putting this together, I labored for hours of how I try to best explain this. And it came down to the thing where, as you hear all this information, all what seemed to be repetitive teaching, all these things of weeks, years, days, so forth and so on, it helps to have a timeline, a timeline diagram. So here it is. Here's a timeline diagram to help us, and it's also in your bulletin and your note page. Because you begin to see here, looking at the diagram helps us understand what's happening in the prophecy itself. So note from the left side of this timeline, the year 4445 B.C., which is a command to restore, rebuild Jerusalem. That's when it begins, according to prophecy, verse 25. And then notice how it's, it's seven weeks or seven periods of seven years, which is equivalent to 49 years, you see it there, 49 years, to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which not coincidentally ties in directly with Ezra chapter 9 and 10, 
as the year 396 B.C. They had the command to restore in 445, 49 years later, or seven weeks. It was all done in 396. That's all verse 25. Verse 26 comes into play then, and that they're going to become an anointed one. First mentioned verse 25, which will be cut off at the end of 62 weeks. So notice the diagram also gives us that information. 62 weeks, which is 434 years from the completion of, Jer of Jerusalem, there'll come a time in which the Messiah is going to be cut off. Now remember, this is done in days, a 364 year, not 365. So scholars refer to it as solar years, rather than the years we think of. So Worsby says then to help explain it, when you count 483 solar years, which is the first 69 weeks from the year 445, you end up with A.D. 29 and A.D. 30, which brings us to the time of Christ's ministry on earth. Essentially, Gabriel is simply affirming to Daniel that 483 years are involved in the giving of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, the ruler, in which he be cut off. Hopefully the diagram and timeline begins to explain some of that, what's happening in these verses. But notice again, after the 69 weeks, the 483 years, that 69 of the 70 weeks have expired, the Messiah is cut off. Now, what's that mean, the Messiah is cut off? Well, think about Jesus' earthly ministry, what you learn in the gospel, or what you already know. What happens towards the end of the days of his life here on earth. The first entry into the Passion Week, or the last week on earth, is called the Triumphal Entry. What happens five days after the Triumphal Entry? The Pharisees, the scribes, and all the fellow Jews shout, call out for him to, to be, for his execution. I mean, the crucifixion is about to happen. That's the cutting off. I mean, it's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant and now Daniel's prophecy that the Messiah be cut off his crucifixion. Basically, he's come to his people and his people rejected him. The anointed one came, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, it was completed. All these weeks, years have transpired. He has the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, and all of a sudden his people reject him. Gabriel explained the 77s to Daniel as a future date of our Lord being led to Calvary and then dying or cut off for our sins, thereby restoring our rebellion as righteous before mighty God. Amazing, again, the accuracy of what happened when this prophecy is beginning to understand what he's saying to Daniel from Gabriel. But according to the timeline, according to the text in Gabriel, the prophecy, I mean, and, and Daniel, what he received from Gabriel, it, it's not the end. Verse 27 says that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. It's helpful to go back to the timeline once more in verse 27. Because now you see, as you look at the timeline once more, in reference to verse 27, the Messiah cut off. Notice to the right, the Messiah cut off. There is what's called a church age. The church age is not given in Daniel chapter 9. There's no mention of it. So 
is sandwiched, though, between what's known as the cutoff and the rapture, which we'll get to in a moment. But interesting, the church age is not referred to in Daniel's prophecy, so I borrow the words of Dr. Jeremiah, who says, Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah marked the beginning of a gap in Daniel's prophecy. Daniel's prophecy is 70 years in its entirety, or 70 weeks, but there's a gap interjected here. His scholars refer to this indefinite period as a time of unreckoned time, and is an era we are still living in today. As the end of an unreckoned time draws to a close, the church, notice the church being capitalized, meaning the people, we've raptured away without notice, and the final seven-year period, the last week of the 70, of Daniel's prophecy will begin. So we have this middle unreckoned time that's interjected here in the midst of the entire prophecy, not mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's not given that particular insight, but it's the time which we're living today because we know Christ did come, and we know that people rejected him. Both actually the Jews and the Gentiles have rejected Christ. So he was cut off, and we're living in that church age today where we go out and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's going to come an end to this unreckoned time or this church age in which will be the rapture. Of course, the rapture is when all born-again faithful Christians will be removed or caught up in the earth. And as that begins to happen, and we're no longer here, that last week begins. That last period of seven years, the final one begins. So notably, at that moment, as you see on the timeline, there's again 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven that have been fulfilled. That's all done. And now with the tribulation years, the last period of seven will complete Daniel 77's mentioned in chapter 9. I hope you begin to understand that a little bit. It takes several different times hearing it and seeing it, but really getting to sink in. Of course, notice also this then. The timeline also informs us of the return of Christ. We don't know that day and time. We just know it will happen at the end of the seven years, whenever that may be. But also the thousand-year millennial kingdom, which is, of course, also not prophesied in Daniel, but also mentioned in Revelation. So what all that means together is this, putting it all together. Chapter 9, as mentioned earlier, is pivotal chapter in end-time prophecy. That's why scholars state, referred to earlier, as Dr. Jeremiah, as the backbone of prophecy. Ironside said it's the greatest of all time prophecies. But it's hard to understand. It's equally hard to explain. You almost can't even have an explanation or understanding without that timeline. And it's still difficult to receive. But hopefully now you can see how it begins to happen, unfold, and apply to each every one of us. And just in case you're unsure how it applies, allow me to end with a little bit of elaboration of how this prophecy directly applies to us. Because all the events on that timeline, in your notes, or what you've seen behind me, all the events on the timeline, except one, have occurred. We are in the unreckoned time. We are in that church age. That will expire. It will expire at an unknown date, hour, and time. And when that day arrives, things will happen quickly. Much quicker, much more quickly than you can possibly react because Scripture tells us in the twinkling of an eye, every believer, every born-again faithful Christian will be removed from the earth. 
in the twinkling of an eye. People will not have the time to react. So you better get right with God. Because the last days as they're ushered in at that moment are horrific. Devastation untold. So what all that means to us is that, first of all, the message from Daniel chapter 9 is unlike any other we could ever receive. It's chock full of explanation and text of prophetic matters that either have been fulfilled or will be fulfilled at a date to be determined. And like I mentioned earlier, it's amazing how accurate all this seems to be of Daniel's prophecy that he received. So it points us to something we've mentioned kind of in the series and alluded to before, but maybe haven't worded it quite this way. And leads to our last point, that you have got to be prepared for the rapture today. I cannot tell you. I would love to tell you when that day would happen and have you prepared for that moment. But we do not know. We simply do not know when that will occur. So I can't tell you when that will happen, but I can tell you better prepare. And you better get right. Because this last seven-year period, the only thing that has not happened yet. When the rapture occurs, and there's plenty of information and revelation to support the preacher view of the rapture, when that occurs, it's going to be hell on earth. And, and all the saints are going to disappear before this last period occurs. And it's greatly and so, it's significantly and appropriately titled as the tribulation. So then maybe the key to everything we've heard here today with all the confusion that may introduce us in Daniel chapter 9 is the assurance of the text that tells us Jesus Christ will come again. He's going to come for his church. He's going to come to judge. And because of that, we have got to be prepared. There's an unknown date, an unknown time, and this church age is going to end. We can enjoy, live it up, and have a great time meeting together. He's spreading the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, which we should do, but there'll come a time when it will end. So we have got to be prepared. We must prepare today and live each and every day as if it could happen at the next minute. It will happen quickly in the twinkling of an eye. So today we ask ourselves this question. Is that how we're living? But what Daniel tells us, everything's been fulfilled except for one thing. And it will also happen. It will be fulfilled. But are we living today anticipating the day of that rapture? When the Christians are removed. Now, obviously, the first step is to make sure that you are right with Jesus Christ. You've accepted him as Lord. It's not just muttering the words necessarily. It's honestly wanting to have a relationship with Christ. And as Sheila mentioned to the children, it's given him 100% of your entire soul. He has given us 100%, no doubt. And now we give him 100% to make sure that we are prepared for the day when the rapture occurs, and all your family and friends who are truly Christians are removed from the earth, and you may be left behind. Do not be left behind and endure the wrath. Prepare today. Father, let me thank you for how a difficult passage here, Lord, that maybe we can begin to understand, still not maybe having all the clarity that we may desire or want to have, but how ultimately points us to the truth that will there be a day that is still to be determined in which we need to prepare for. 
Lord, the prophecy tells us of time as it begins to wane and expire upon this church age, that there'll be something wonderful happening, but perhaps also scary at the same time. Wonderful for those who are prepared today to be with Christ, and but scary for those who, well, for never, never have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. So today, Lord, during our time of reflection, of invitation, we take a moment to reflect upon our preparedness. And even for those who are around us that we love who may not be prepared. And during this time, Lord, we, we beg and plead for those to get prepared today. And we even pray today that you're stirring their heart. As people are hearing these words here or later, Lord, as they listen to the message, that it would just stir in their heart greatly to get prepared for this time to come. We thank you, Lord, for how we can receive this text. We thank you, Lord, of how you took our place upon the cross and then how we can accept you and how you forgive us for our sins. For only you, Lord, can do that. In Jesus' name we pray.